This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. With that being said, please open in your Bibles to the book of Jude. Book of Jude. If you need a Bible, uh, we will make sure that everyone here has a copy of God's Word in front of them. So you can just go ahead and put your hand up in the air. Um, just throw it up. We want to make sure that you, you have it in front of you to see it today. Uh, we could put it up on the screen, but we will make sure everyone has their own copy that they could have and then take home. And also, uh, we just want you to know that some of the things you're going to hear today are so good. We want to make sure that I'm not making it up. We want to see it for yourselves. If you're looking for the book of Jude, basically just go all the way to the end, find the book of Revelation, and then go left. It's the second to last book of the Bible. And we are in week three of what was supposed to be a five-week series in Jude. The plan was today to get through verses 5 through 16 and to do that in one sermon. However, as I began to write that sermon, as the sermon began to become longer and longer and longer, I'm like, Lord, I just can't do that to these precious people. And so we are now in a six-week sermon series on the book of Jude. Today we'll not be going over 5 through 16, we're going through 5 through 7, and next week we'll pick up with verses 8 through 16. But we've been calling this series in Jude, Keeping the Faith. Jude is all about protecting what is precious, contending for the faith that has been delivered once and for all by God, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with that theme in mind, this is what God has to say to us. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down through what we'll focus on today, verses 5 through 7. This is the word of God. May he be praised as we read it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their proper uh, their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Praise God for his holy word. Let's bow our heads and pray that he would speak to us through it. And I want to encourage you, actually, just to pray for yourself. Take a moment. Pray for yourself that your heart would be open to what God wants to say to you today.
Now would you please pray for me that I would speak clearly, faithfully, and in a way that is helpful to you. God, you are good, and your way is righteous and true. I pray that you would lead us into what you are saying today, that in your words we might find life. Would you do this, Lord God, for the good of our souls and the glory of your name? Amen. So in verses 5 and 7, Jude's theme is fairly clear. He's talking about the reality of God's judgment. And I don't think we naturally like to think about such things. We like Planet Fitness, a judgment-free zone. You know, Planet Fitness even has a pizza night, apparently, at their gym. Like, you, 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 can, you can go, get your steps in, and eat pizza, and undo all your work. But hey, no judgment there, right? You know, that's, that's how they market themselves. And they're one of the most popular gyms in our country. We don't like the idea of judgment. And these people that Jude is writing to, they didn't like it either. He says in verse 5 that he has to remind them about what they used to know because they had left it behind. False teachers had come into the church, unnoticed by the church, and were sowing seeds of untrue things about Jesus. And so last week we saw how they did this in verse 4 by teaching a false sexual ethic. Today we see one of the other ways they did it was by denying the reality of God's judgment. These people were confused because the false teachers had confused them. They were saying things like, you're fine, God doesn't really care what you do. Do whatever you want and God's grace means that you'll be all good. No problem. And Jude sees what is happening and he can't just let it go. He has to write to this church to contend for the faith. Because they're in the danger of losing something precious. Jude sees the judgment of God not as a secondary thing that we can agree to disagree about, but he sees it as a primary issue that when denied, guts grace for the good news that it truly is. And so there's really something about the truth in God's judgment that, that teaches us something profound about the grace in God's love. And we need to see both of those things together. And so while on the face of it, it might seem like hearing about the judgment of God is a a hard theme to get into, and it is, I want to prepare you, We, we, we have some hard work in front of us, and yet in this hard, I think there's actually something profoundly beautiful, profoundly life shaping, profoundly peace giving, burden lifting freedom sharing. And so actually in this message on God's judgment, I believe God actually wants to bring some healing. I believe God wants to bring some good gospel healing today. Because today we're going to talk about the love of God and the judgment of God. We're going to talk about the love of God and the judgment of God. Just two points this morning. The truth about God's judgment, which is where we'll spend most of our time. The truth about God's judgment. And then point number two, the love in God's judgment. Truth about God's judgment and then the love in God's judgment. So first, the truth about God's judgment. In response to what these false teachers were saying about God's judgment, Jude basically tells them, um, you're saying that God doesn't judge, but have you read the Bible? (laughs) 
And he goes back to the Old Testament and cites three examples from that sacred history that shows the truth about God's judgment. And friends, let's be clear, this is how we contend for the faith. We don't argue our opinions. We don't go back and forth based upon our subjective lived experiences. We don't quote the latest blogger or YouTube personality or tweet that we heard. No, we ask the question, what does God's word actually say? The first example that Jude gives about God's judgment is from the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 1, we see the people of Israel come to the promised land. Israel had been enslaved to Egypt, but God had powerfully and miraculously freed them from that slavery. But after being freed from their slavery, the people have to go through a desert to get to the land that God had for them because just because God delivered them did not mean there was still not a journey for them to go through. It's a whole sermon I could do on that. But as they travel through the desert, the people start to doubt God. Now, I don't think doubting God was necessarily their problem. Doubts in of themselves can sometimes be a good thing as they cause you to ask hard questions that should then lead you to search for answers and actually deepen your faith. But if you don't search for answers, if you just doubt and don't do the hard work of digging into your doubts, then doubts can fester over time and turn into unbelief. And that's what was happening with these Israelites. They didn't go looking for God in their doubts. They didn't seek after him. And so their doubts had turned into unbelief. And by the time they get to the promised land, they don't even want to go in because they are afraid of what might happen to them. Their view of God had changed so much that they didn't think God could save them from the people in the land. And so this is what the Israelites said. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 26, because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us in the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Now these were the exact people who had seen God save them from Egypt. But as they're going through their present challenge, that begins to give them some revisionist history. Okay, yes, God powerfully saved us, but he did that because he was trying to get us. How often we allow our view of God to be shaped by our current circumstances. And yet when we do that, we fall into unbelief. Their fear led them to deny their faith in God. And so what happened as a result of them expressing that unbelief in God? Well, God says this to them. Moses says this to them about God. The Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of the men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to your fathers. And so this whole generation ends up not being allowed to go into the promised land. And they get wiped out and destroyed in the desert. The God who saved them became the God who judged them. Jude goes on to give another example in verse 6 about angels who rebelled against God and God judged them. There's some debate about who these angels are. And so most ancient commentators, the early church fathers in the first and second century thought that these angels were the angels that we hear about in Genesis chapter 6 who intermingled with humanity Most modern commentators think that they are the fallen angels that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 14. Others argue they are those who uh, John talks about in Revelation 20. It's an interesting debate if you want to spend some time kicking around on on Google about that. But regardless of who these angels are, uh, we can't miss the point. The point's not who are these angels. The point is that God judges even angels. No one can escape the judgment of God. 
And, and notice here that we begin to see a little clearer what it means when God says that his judgment destroys. Jude said that God destroyed the generation of Israelites who did not believe, but here we see the angels are destroyed. How? By being kept in eternal chains until the day of judgment. And so we see God's judgment is not a temporal thing. It's not just something that only happens in the here and now. It can happen in here and now, but it's also an eternal thing. God is an eternal being. And so sin against him deserves an eternal consequence. We see this even more clearly developed in the final example that Jude gives of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about those two infamous cities in Genesis 18 and 19. But they are two cities that was known for their sinfulness, particularly, as Jude highlights here, their sexual sinfulness. As we saw last week, God creates sex to be the physical expression of the spiritual reality, of the beauty of what it means to be one with Him. And so sex is meant to take place in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. And the Bible says that this is sacred and beautiful and not in any way to be degraded. But Sodom and Gomorrah did not listen to God. They did, not, they did not do what the Lord said. They did whatever their hearts led them to do, and they trampled on the sacred nature of what sex is. And so God judged those cities for their immorality, and fire rained down from heaven, and they were destroyed. But here Jude gives us even more information. He writes that that fire was not just a fire that came and burned everything up. No, look at the end of verse 7. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The physical fire that you or I would have seen if we were observing what was happening to Sodom and Gomorrah on the day when they were destroyed, what Judah is telling us is that was an example. That was a physical manifestation of the eternal fire that they were going to undergo. And so here we see Jude is really just repeating the words of Jesus. And this is what Jesus said about the judgment of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or John chapter 15, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burn. And so as Jude is writing about the eternal fire of God's judgment, he's just teaching what Jesus taught. That hell is a real place where God's judgment is expressed like a fire that burns you forever. And so this should make us understand that hell is a painful place. A few things are more painful than being burned. And this also shows us what it's like to live forever without God. Pastor Tim Keller, I think, helpfully writes this when he says, a common image of hell in the Bible is that of fire. Fire disintegrates. Even in this life, we can see the kind of soul disintegration that self-centeredness creates. We know how selfishness and self-absorption leads to piercing bitterness, nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, 
and the mental denials and distortions that accompany them. Now ask the question, what if when we die, we don't end? But spiritually, our life extends into eternity. Hell, then, is the trajectory of the soul, living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. In other words, what he's saying is hell is God finally saying to people, fine, your will be done. The judgment of God is God giving sinful people over to what they've always wanted, life without him. But since God is the God of life, there's only eternal death. There's only eternal fire. There's only eternal soul disintegration outside of him. And I know that this hits us really hard as we hear it. But the question I want to first ask is, would it really be good for God to not care about judgment? Would it really be right and good for God to not bring any kind of justice? In 2022, Operation Cross Country had the largest human trafficking bust ever. 200 people saved from unspeakable horrors. How would we feel if we found out that the perpetrators of that crime had been set free and not judged? Like, I think we would take to the streets in protest, right? I, I think there'd be a righteous outcry for justice. We want justice. We know that it is not right to turn a blind eye to wrongs. And so why should we expect God to be any less just than us? Well, why would we want God to turn a blind eye to wrong? A God who doesn't judge would be a God who is evil and corrupt and certainly not a God of any kind of worship, who's worth any kind of worship. But I think we can struggle with God's judgment, not because we don't appreciate the concept of justice, but because his judgment feels unjust. I mean, going through these verses, God's judgment can seem harsh. The punishment does not necessarily seem to fit the crime. But friends, that's because we don't understand God and how holy he is. And so we don't grasp our sin and how heinous it is. If I sketched a doodle and gave it to you, and you, out of humor, or maybe malicious intent, drew a mustache on it and defaced my drawing, that wouldn't be that big a deal because I stink at drawing, and so it's actually like not something that would be that big a deal. You'd probably improve it by defacing it that way, you know? But if you were to go to the Louvre in Paris and paint a mustache on the Mona Lisa, you're going away to jail for a very long time. Same action, but it would be against something of far more value. There will be greater judgment because the Mona Lisa has greater value than my little doodle. Friends, there is nothing, there is no one more valuable than God. He is the holy transcendent, exalted, creator of all, king of the cosmos, who gives life. And so there is nothing that deserves greater judgment than sin against him because he is the greatest being that there ever is and ever will be. 
And so we need to understand that God's judgment and wrath towards sin, it's, it's really nothing like our experience of anger. This is not God being petty, vindictive. This is not God overreacting. No, God's judgment, his repulsion towards sin that arises from his holy nature. See, God is too pure. He is too exalted to allow sin to even exist in his presence. For God to tolerate sin would be for God to stop being the holy God. And God cannot and will not stop being who he is. And so God's judgment is an expression of his divine perfection. And so this is the truth about the judgment of God, which Jude is saying that we must contend for. Because if not, as he says in verse 4, the grace of God will become perverted. We'll be denying something that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ himself taught. We'll be denying something about the grace of what our Lord and Master Jesus Christ taught. See, it's a hard message about the judgment of God, but there's actually something profound about this. It shows us the grace of God. So let's look at point number two, the love of God in God's judgment. You see, the more we understand God's holiness, the more we see the righteousness of his judgment, the more we contemplate the eternal fire of what God's judgment is, the more that we understand that God's judgment is what we deserve the more we will appreciate the love of God and what he has done in Jesus to save us from his judgment. If you take out the judgment of God, you gut the good news of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He becomes a martyr with a failed mission, not the Savior who rescues us from what we deserve. If someone came up to me and said, hey, you know, I just want you to know that I really, really, really love you. I think you're so great. And so I'm going to give up all my blood for you, and I'm going to die for you. Um, be like, thanks. Um, I, I don't need blood. Like, I'm good. You know, like, why don't you just keep your blood for yourself? You know, and I'd quietly back away and probably call up someone on the psych ward, Right? Like, that'd be a pretty creepy conversation. But if my child was in the hospital with a rare blood disease, and the only way they could be saved from certain death was for someone to come and give all their blood up for them, I'd tell the doctors, hook me up and take it all. (laughs) I'm willing to give up all my blood and die for them because I love them with all my heart. The first scenario is creepy, because blood isn't needed. The second scenario is a profound act of love because blood is what's needed to bring life. Friends, as we see the judgment of God, what we need to understand is we need blood. We need, we need blood. We are sinners and there is judgment coming for us and there is no escaping it. But God sent Jesus so that he could, as he says in his own words, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a price that it costs to purchase someone's freedom. 
It's what did it cost Jesus to purchase our freedom from God's judgment? Well, if our sins deserve an eternity in hell, then eternity in hell is what Christ had to pay. And so Jesus came as the God-man. He came as a man so that he could take the sins of humanity and stand in our place. And he came as the one true God so that as the one true God, he could pay for all our sins in his eternal being for all eternity. And so Jesus goes to the cross. And we need to be clear what's happening on the cross, friends. He is suffering hell in our place. The judgment of God descending upon him. He is taking what we deserve. And so as we look at the cross and think about the cross, you know, Jesus' physical agonies were great to be sure. But let's be clear, they pale in comparison to his spiritual agony. For on the cross, Jesus became sin and was treated as our sins deserve by the holy God whose divine nature must judge sin for the evil that it is. And so, just think with me for a moment what that must have been like. For Jesus to become sin on the cross. For Jesus to have the sin of every generation, past, present, and future. The horrors of humanity done against humanity. The shameful acts of darkness and evil. Christ the pure became all of that. And God with omnipotent hatred for sin and righteous wrath judged him for those wrongs. Judged him for our wrongs. For all eternity, the Father and Son had lived in a beautiful harmony of loving relationship. But when Christ became sin, it was not the loving voice of the Father that Jesus heard on the cross. It was the fierce condemnation of the just and holy God. Looking down on Christ, charging Him with our sin. You are greedy and lazy and a glutton, and a slanderer, and a gossip. You lie, and are conceited, and are ungrateful. You practice sexual immorality, and fill your mind with vulgarity. You hate, and murder with the bullets of anger, fired from your own heart. You oppress the poor, and ignore the needy. You love money, and prestige, and honor, and are filled with greed, and selfishness. You're lukewarm in your faith, and easily enticed away from me by the world. Your heart is filled with envy, and rage, and bitterness, and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin, and are often too proud to even Call it sin. You have no self-control. You do not trust me. You speak false things about me and against me. And the list of our sins goes on and on. And God's judgment goes on and on. And Jesus drinks the cup, what Isaiah called the cup of staggering, the cup of God's wrath. Jesus just drinks it and drinks it and drinks it. And as he drinks, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
but from the holy God who cannot be with sin, there is only silence. There's only separation. So Jesus sags and whispers, I'm thirsty. A centurion soaks a sponge in sour wine and lifts it on a reed to his lips. He moistens his mouth. Speaks one last time. It says it is finished. And it is. Every sin of every person who places their faith in Christ had been laid on Jesus. And he had drunk the cup dry of God's hellfire wrath for you and for me. It's finished. Judgment endured. Hell suffered. Ransom paid. Mission accomplished. See, friends, the surprising twist about God's judgment is that the God who judges sin is also the God who came and was judged for our sin. And so we need to contend for the faith and hold fast to the truth about God's judgment for the heart of the gospel is that there is one who is taking God's judgment for us and his name is Jesus. And so I think there are three ways that we can apply this. I'm just going to give them to you and then, and then we'll be done. Lord, help. First, if you're listening to this and you do not believe in Jesus as your Savior, then I want to ask you a very uncomfortable question and I want to make it weird. Because I'd rather be uncomfortable and weird than not honest. If Jesus isn't your Savior, then what's your plan for being saved? You say, well, my plan is I don't believe in God's judgment. (laughs) And so I don't think there's any need to be saved. I just want to push back on that a little bit for you. And say, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that we exist in a universe where there's no ultimate justice? I don't think you can believe that. Because if you did, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. You'd be living an utterly despairing and depressed life. Innate in us is a sense that there is justice in this. There's something that's going to come that will, that will punish all wrongs. But if there's justice, then, then what does that mean What does that mean for you? Because I'm sure if you're honest with yourself for more than two seconds, you've done some wrongs, as have I. And so friends, I just want to be very clear, you need to be saved from God's judgment. You need to be saved from God's judgment. And you can comfort yourself by just trying to bank on all this being made up. But if you knew you were going to die tonight, would you really want to bank on this being made up? I just want to lay it out to you today. God's judgment is real. And Jesus' salvation is true. So come to him. Romans 10, 13 says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Come to him. Come to him without stigma. Come to him without shame. It doesn't matter if you've been coming here for a while and resisting and like, oh man, I don't want to like, you know, be that person and shit. No, just come to him. You need him. Put your faith in him today. That's, that's the first application and I pray you would take it, because I don't know what your tomorrow is, but I know what your today is. 
Today is the day of salvation that God's offering to you. I pray that you would take it. Here's a second application. And it's for Christians. Those of us who do trust in Jesus as our Savior. I'm going to make this weird for us. I'm going to make this uncomfortable for us. If we believe in Jesus, we believe that what he says is true, that these words are not just words, that these are the words of God's revelation, his authority speaking into our life. Here's my question. Then where is our urgency to share the gospel with those who are lost? I know for me so often that I can battle fears when it comes to sharing my faith. I don't want people to think I'm weird. I don't want to risk the relationship. When I used to work in sales, I'd say, well, I don't want to lose a client. I don't want to lose a job. Or friend, what if that person's going to lose their soul? Now, I want to be careful here. I think sometimes we hear a message about judgment and we can begin to think about loved ones who have passed away and we feel a burden. I'm just not sure if they're saved. Listen, I don't think this at all should disquiet our souls about them. For anyone who has gone on from this world, just trust them to God's mercy. We never know what anyone's final moments are. As so don't say where someone is, you don't know where someone is. But if there are people who are alive and in front of you right now that don't believe in Jesus, you do know where they are. And so I don't think we should have a burden for those who are gone, but we should have a burden for those who are still here. I've shared this before, so some of you might know it, but when I was a sophomore in college, I had a friend uh, play on the soccer team named Pat. One day we were talking about faith and the idea of hell came up and he said, what's up with that? You don't really believe in things like God's judgment, do you? And I remember feeling honestly really embarrassed. Pat was a pretty cool dude and I didn't want to risk the relationship. Uh, I didn't want to come across as one of those Christians. He's someone who's judgmental. So I mumbled some kind of answer and I, I think ultimately I said, Let, let's... Let's just talk about tomorrow, right? I just, I just kicked the can down the road. Like, hopefully, I don't know, I, he'll forget about it and won't ask me again. <laughs> Put it off because it's a hard conversation. That night, Pat was killed in a car accident. And so we never had a conversation tomorrow because his tomorrow never came. And again, I trust God. I don't carry a guilt of burden of that, but there is a lesson I want to learn from that. I never want to bank on being able to have a conversation with someone tomorrow that God has given me an opportunity to have a conversation with today. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exhortations and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Friends, there is judgment, but there is salvation, and God has sent us to make his way of salvation known. And so if people are going to go to hell, friends, may they not go there unwarned by us. May they not go there not knowing that there is salvation in Jesus. May we be more concerned for their souls than fearful for what it might cost us. May we repent of our selfishness. May we be in all of God and his holiness. And may we be filled with the holy burden to share with lost people the way that they can be saved. What are we doing if we're not doing that? 
I need to remind myself of this again and again and again because it's so easy to go through life and just get in the routines of life and forget that there are eternal souls around me that God wants to save from the judgment of come, to come. And so, friends, how can we be silent? How can we not pray on a daily basis, Lord, give me opportunities to share and boldness to take those opportunities when they come? Third and final application. One of the common struggles that I can see Christians facing, and I definitely see it in myself, is we can go back and forth between not taking sin seriously and just easily engaging in it, indulging in it, and then conversely, we begin to feel condemned and guilty and shamed. And so that can begin a vicious cycle where we indulge in sin, we feel guilty about sin, and then we just go back to indulging in more sin. And over time, we can just feel trapped in that cycle. I think in love, God shows us the truth about his judgment to cut through and stop that cycle. God's judgment exposes the lie that sin is no big deal. The next time you're tempted to sin and think like, oh, it's not a problem, no problem. No, remember that sin against the eternal God deserves eternal punishment from God. It's that choice to vent your anger and speech, speak harshly against someone. That choice to watch that thing in private that cultivates lust, that choice to lie or cheat or steal or any number of ways that sin can manifest itself in our life, friends, it is deadly serious. Sin might look like a harmless toy gun that we can play around with, but it is a deadly weapon that can kill us. And so God's judgment cuts through the lie that our sin is not serious. When we see God's response to our sin, that shows us just how deadly serious it is but also cuts through a lie that we should live in guilt for our sin. I think sometimes our feelings of guilt and shame, us saying like, hey, I just don't know if I can forgive myself, or us trying to judge ourselves for the wrongs that we've done, us trying to somehow pay God through emotional turmoil for our sins. But here's what we have to understand, that the, the, the truth of God's judgment, that God's, God, God's judgment is so serious, he doesn't accept the payment plan. He doesn't accept a payment plan. And so when Jesus took God's judgment on the cross, God's judgment was too serious for Jesus to only take some of it. For, for him to put him on a payment plan as a down payment, and then for you to have to continue to make payments to come. No, no, no. God's judgment is so serious that once he opened it up against Jesus, he needed to pour it all out. God's judgment was too serious to, to only go halfway. And so all of God's judgment had to be suffered by Christ, which means there's none left for you. When we're living with guilt, we're actually not taking God's judgment seriously enough. We're thinking that our feeling bad about ourselves is somehow a necessary partial payment. But God does not allow payment plans. And so our debt has been paid, it's been paid in full, by the precious blood that our Savior spilled. The curse of sin has no hold on me. I'm free. I'm free. For Jesus has paid it all. When he said it was finished, he meant it. And so when we feel condemned, friends, it is finished. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. When we doubt that God could love us, it is finished. There is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans chapter 8, verse 39. 
when we feel like we've been so inconsistent and faithless in our faith, friends, it is finished. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. When we feel powerless to say no to our sin, we just can't stop. No, we need to understand it is finished. Romans 6.11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And when we just aren't sure how to get through another day, we need to know it is finished. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so Christ's church, we must keep the faith and not deny God's judgment. For it is in the just judgment of God that we see the profound love of God blazing in glory through the cross of Jesus Christ where he took God's judgment for us and it is now in Jesus' finished work that we live. Let's pray.